You're listening to Trademarks Made Easy. Trademarks Made Easy is the podcast focused on helping brand owners in the e-commerce space. With your host, Susie Hickson, the private label lawyer. But don't worry, you won't find too much legalese here. Well, hey there, and welcome back to the Trademarks Made Easy for Private Label Sellers podcast. I'm your host, Susie Hickson, also known as the Private Label Lawyer. I'm the founder of the Private Label Law Boutique, and we help clients create long-term wealth with their private label products by guiding them through the complexities of the legal landscape so they can grow their private label businesses securely and confidently on a daily basis. So I'm really excited about this week's episode and and also next week. So this week, we're going to be talking with Rachel Santarlis. This is part one of two episodes. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode as well. But Rachel Santarlis has been a friend of mine and a colleague of mine for quite a long time. We were actually baby lawyers together years ago. We met in New York City. We had sort of a common bond. She had actually just been in Louisville, Kentucky for the Kentucky Derby. And when she found out that I was from Kentucky, she just, you know, immediately wanted to talk with me. And of course, Rachel has this really awesome accent. So it's sort of like the battle of the accents in this episode. So if you're into accents, you're going to get two very different accents (laughs) over the next couple of weeks because Rachel's from New Jersey. So it's a lot of fun. She's a great friend of mine, great colleague, love her to death. But let me tell you just a little bit about Rachel. She is such a wealth of information. Again, she doesn't disappoint. I really had to break this into two part. So make sure that you do grab a pen and paper and be ready to take notes. I don't think that these two episodes are going to be like treadmill episodes, right? Like I really think these are great to be in a position where you can take notes. There's a lot of really practical tips that she talks about. So Rachel owns Santarlis Law, which is also a boutique law firm, and she's a registered patent attorney, and she counsels U.S. and international clients in the areas of patent, copyright, trademark, and brand procurement and protection and enforcement, as well as internet and privacy law-related issues. Rachel, in this episode, is going to be talking with me about copyright specifically. So prior to starting St. Charles Law, let me just tell you how awesome Rachel is. She held the position of counsel with a large northern New Jersey-based law firm where she worked for over 11 years in their intellectual property and media and technologies group. She also began her legal career working with Tommy Hilfiger and in the Entertainment brand, World Wrestling Entertainment, the WWE. How cool is that? So there she focused on U.S. and international copyright and trademark protection, prosecution, anti-counterfeiting, and enforcement. So again, grab a pen and paper, be ready to take notes, enjoy the episode, enjoy 
the accents. <laughs> and I'll see you on the other side. Thank you for being here, Rachel, and welcome. Thank you so much, Susie, for that wonderful introduction and for having me as a guest today on your podcast. I will say you're leaving out an important uh, joining factor for both of us, and that is the Kentucky Derby. Oh, yes. <laughs> I know you love the old Kentucky Derby. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't, I would be remiss if I did not introduce myself to a true Kentuckian having just been to the Kentucky Derby that, that May. So. Yeah, uh, that's right. You were, you hadn't, didn't you all go after you all had recently gotten married or didn't yes. your husband go down for his bachelor party or something like that? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, I've been there twice and it, it was just a wonderful experience. So what was your favorite do, part? Yeah. If you can remember. Well, the infield on the actual big derby day, but, and then doing the Kentucky Oaks the day before, yeah. which was, you know, a, got to receive a, a better view of the horses at, the, <laughs> at Churchill Downs. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not often that you, that someone from New Jersey can speak about can, the Kentucky Derby like I can. So I feel, <laughs> feel pretty good about myself right now. But, uh, but, but thank you today for having me. I, I feel very honored. Well, I am honored to have you on this podcast to talk about e-commerce and copyright, because I know that this is an area that a lot of people overlook when they when it comes to their e-commerce business and copyright law is not something that I can really speak on as well as you can and so that I was like oh my gosh I have to have Rachel on here to talk about copyrights and I think one of the first things I want to ask you Rachel is you know what are the primary issues that you see e-commerce sellers having when it comes to copyrights well, one of the things I noticed is the issue of ownership and the issue of when that e-commerce seller is posting content to their site, whether it be photographs or written content or otherwise, and when that owner goes to assert a claim against a third-party infringer, whether it be through Amazon or eBay in the form of a takedown notice saying, hey, you know, on this part of your site, there's infringing works. The big question coming back to the copyright owner is, do they own the content of what they are putting up? And do they, do they have the rights to assert? This could happen when a e-commerce seller may be hiring summer interns right now and you give that intern the assignment to do xyz maybe you don't ask them point blank but you make the assumption that their work is original and that they did not copy it from somebody else another situation that often arises if you're using an independent contractor particularly a website developer that has designed your website and you say well everything i'm using is mine i gave i paid them i paid them thousand dollars to do the website yeah uh and that's not always the case without the right language that expressly states that independent contractor isn't is assigning all of his or her work product to you or your company another thing is the photos, same thing with the written content, assuming that maybe the photos, if you're doing a compare and contrast, my product is just like Susie's product. But then going to Susie's website and taking the, the copyrighted content from Susie's website, her photos, her language to do a compare and contrast to do to sell your own product. 
is that a fair use defense or are you encroaching on Susie's copyright in into her authored works? Those are some of the, the issues that, that, that come up where you think, hey, I found it on the internet. It's in the public domain. I can easily use it. Or, you know, my competitors are all using content or photos XYZ and so can I. I love that one, don't you? Everyone yeah. else is doing the, the Ill, Ill, illegal thing, so I should be able to do it too, or my competitors are. What does someone do if they are on the receiving end of a copyright infringement allegation? And there could be some concerns about whether or not the alleged rights owner may or may not own those rights. Like, so what should someone do? Should they go get an attorney? Is there a way to see if they can validate those rights or, and what, how could they respond to the alleged right rights holder and basically force their hand and show them their alleged rights? Is there a way that they can do that? Sure. So first and foremost, one thing that you never want to do is ignore a letter of any kind, no matter how menacing it sounds, no matter how wrong you think it sounds, no matter how bad you think the allegations are, you you always want to review the letter but respond and oftentimes as you know Susie attorneys will say I need to hear back from you within a week's time Mm -hmm. you first and foremost would perhaps write to that adverse party saying hey I'm in receipt of your letter and I'm reviewing the claims and if you don't mind could you give me some more time to digest it Mm -hmm. in that time frame you should acknowledge what is being alleged and, and, and make sure that the, the person or company asserting the copyright infringement has a valid, valid claim to do so. So, for example, if they're saying you are using a photo without a proper license, go back to your design team and say, hey, before you took the image from iStock Photo online and you put it on our website, can you show me in our files that you've obtained the proper license in place? In other words, have your ammo ready to go to rebut the claims in the, the, the letter. Oftentimes, the letter will come from an attorney. And so the only way to really show your cards and have your uh, defenses in order is to get return your, retain your own lawyer. And, and while it's not the most inexpensive way to handle it, you know, that attorney will be able to, again, assess the claims with you and see if you have not gotten permission from the copyright owner that you have a fair use defense here. And there is such a doctrine in under U.S. copyright law that says if you have not gotten permission to use others' materials, perhaps you have a fair use defense to do so, which would then... be asserted by the attorney and it's a very gray statute to navigate and it's a case-by-case analysis that that involves a lot of factors. Typically, a well-seasoned lawyer in the copyright area would be your best and next step. So can you talk to those fair use points a little bit, Rachel, just, just some things for people to consider to see if they might fall under that as a defense? Sure. Importantly, because the statute is, you know, copyright law can be a little bit vague, it is a case-by-case basis. So, for example, one of the 
one of the prongs to fair use would be, are you making commercial use of another person's copyrighted work? So have you taken someone else's photograph without their permission and put it onto your website as a means to boost sales for your own product? Are you profiting from that? Or have you taken the photograph and used the photograph for non-commercial and educational purposes? My guess is if you're dealing with e-commerce sellers and selling and sales on the internet, that you're not using the person's copyrighted photo for educational purposes to illustrate a point or illustrate a point of view it's probably going to be that you're profiting from this. And, you know, an argument could be made that without seeking a proper copyright license from the photo's owner, that you are profiting illegally and should have to either stop doing it or pay the copyright owner some damages. Let's say that you're on the receiving end of, of a demand letter and you realize, okay, it does look like I could be, you know, inadvertently using, someone, like not necessarily willfully infringing their copyright, but, you know, oh, I just realized that these people are right. Would it be proper to respond and say, or to, to propose a licensing arrangement with them? Chances are that not always, but, but occasionally in the demand letter, the copyright owner would say, hey, I've caught wind that you've been using this photo or written content in, in connection with this piece of your website. You owe me X amount that you would have paid had you otherwise gotten a license agreement from me. And in addition, if you'd like to go forward in using it, that you would have to enter into a license agreement going forward. And so... That would be one way that if you were in the wrong in the first place and you wanted to continue using the copyrighted work, that you could go ahead and that offer would be given to you by the copyright owner. That's not always the case because remember that copyright owner could have a, another license agreement in place with some other party and it could be exclusive, meaning that party is the only one that has been given the rights to reproduce, to display, and to publish. And so that copyright owner can't grant you a license because then the copyright owner would be in breach of the other exclusive license with the other third-party user. Copyright law can get very messy very quickly. Yes. And so at the end of the day, yeah, the end of the day, the safest course of action is to always use your own materials. But again, buttoning that up from the very get-go, if you're having the summer interns and if you're having the independent contractors to do spot checks on their work, have them sign an agreement saying, you know, that, that their work is going to be original and that they're not infringing. And that if it is, that they, that you can look to them for indemnification because ultimately, you know, you're using their work product and it's only as good as how they prepare it. And if they're not copying from somebody, some other third party. So buttoning all that up at the get-go. If you're not using your own works, your own photographs taken by your own photographer or yourself, let's say, then getting permission from the copyright owner to use their materials in connection with your business. 
I think that you made a couple of really good points. Number one, be proactive when you are working with summer interns and independent contractors when it comes to the agreement that you have with them to make sure that if they do something to infringe someone else's copyright, hopefully that would absolve you of liability and you could work those terms into the contract. Make sure that anybody that's yeah. preparing any deliverables or work product for you is not knowingly or willfully infringing in that they are taking purposefully taking other people's copyrighted works and using, using them to create deliverables for your own business. And then if it's not original works that you're getting permission from a third party to use their works on your website or to use those works in connection with your business. So yeah, so this basically comes down to those contracts that you have with these third parties that you outsource, like the designer, summer's interns, and making sure that you appropriately absolve yourself of liability should they go and lift someone else's, you know, images or infringe someone else's copyrights. But I also think an important point here too, especially if you're dealing with summer interns or any type of intern that you have working with you is proper education and making sure that they have the proper education and they know and that they're aware about the lifting of images. And I think that this is important because there's a lot of misconceptions out there when it comes to copyright. And one of those that a lot of people have is that if I give attribution, I'm good to go. Right, right. <laughs> right? I hear that a lot. I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's how that works. But you do hear that a lot, that people are like, well, if I give attribution to the copyright owner, then isn't, aren't, aren't I good to go with respect to, to you know, use of the images? Can you speak a little bit about that, Rachel, and maybe a little bit about a few common misconceptions people have when it comes to copyright? So one common miscon uh, misconception is that, that giving attribution will enable you to use a copyrighted work without the permission of the owner. And that is simply false. Attribution is not permission. Yes. Uh, Make it a trip. <laughs> yeah. Attribution is not permission. So giving credit, giving credit to the original author is not enough. It does not absolve you from liability. It, it actually, in fact, does the opposite. It, it proves that you should have asked the owner in the first place because you're acknowledging that the owner owns the work. And, and that you you're don't. aware of it. Yeah. yeah. So it actually can uh, work against you in terms of, you know, assessing treble da damages when it comes to willful infringement. Getting permission is ultimately the number one, the highest standard. When you get permission, to use a copyrighted work, the work itself can be used in any way that you and the owner determine would be best for both parties. Obviously, you want to get the permission in writing. So here's another misconception is that, oh, we had to talk about it over the phone and he said I could use it. But what you didn't remember is that he said only to use it on your website. He didn't say to allow, again, the third parties working under your direction to put it into print materials to be circulated to thousands of people in the, you know, uh, Metro New York area. 
getting permission in the form of a formal license agreement where it outlines the rights that you and the copyright owner have and it delineates exactly how you may use the copyrighted work is not only for the owner's benefit, but for your benefit as well. Yeah, I like that. And I think that a lot of people forget about that, right? They're like, they may have some hesitation about reaching out directly to the copyright owner, but at the end of the day, what they're doing is they're they're protecting themselves as well via do, you know, entering into that licensing agreement. Right. And lastly, I want to note another uh, misnomer, and that is paying an independent contractor, whether it be to design your product packaging for your item that you're selling, whether it be your promotional literature or otherwise, paying the independent contractor does not equal ownership. So let's A talk, about of, that. talk about yeah. that. Yeah, a lot of the times in these independent contractor agreements or website development developer agreements, it outlines what that third-party contractor will be doing for your business and obviously lists what you'll be paying for those, those deliverables. But a lot of the times the assignment language is missing, the proper assignment language. And so many business owners will say, hey, but I paid him and I have this agreement and I gave him the money, so it's mine, right? And under copyright law, you, you there must be an assignment in writing signed by the assinor, here the independent contractor who's created the work, saying that anything I've created has been fully assigned to you, the s &E company who has retained me. And the consideration in the sum of whatever you had paid, five or $10,000, is the after afterthought. Here it's the ownership language has to be there. And oftentimes that language is missing. That's, that language is almost always missing. And so the safest case course of action would be to enter into a separate copyright assignment agreement independent of your website developer agreement or your mm -hmm. independent contractor agreement that fully and expressly states that for the payment of whatever sum, you are now the owner of anything that party has created, that contractor has created for you or your business. Wow. So that would go to independent contractors who do some type of creative work for you. You're going to need to have that assignment. Also product photography, product packaging artwork, which obviously is really important. And I think a lot of people kind of overlook that, that that is an artistic, that that could be artistic expression and subject to copyright protection. Right. Absolutely. Uh, better to be safe than to be sorry. When you never work with that contractor, perhaps again, you want to know that you have all right title and ownership to that particular deliverable in perpetuity. And that means forever. So, and, and in any way you want to use it, you do not want somebody coming back to you making a claim that you're using it contrary to what was anticipated or somehow when your product just takes off and perhaps a big Instagram star now starts using your product and, and it has their 20 million followers and you're just really doing well that this particular contractor comes back to your door and says, hey, I know you're doing well. It's because of me and I'd like to have a, a you know, put my hand in the pot, if you will, because you don't really own it because that assignment language wasn't perfected in some way. 
Wow, that's kind of scary. <laughs> very, very scary. But we all take it for granted that this even goes with the interns as well. That sure. that anybody creating something, the person who reduces it to a tangible medium is the owner of that particular work. So it's the person who writes the speech. It's the songwriter. It's the book author. They own the works. Not the publisher. The publisher gets a license from the author to publish the book in various forms, ebook, audio, paperback, hard copy, or otherwise. So you never want to assume that even if the person's not getting paid, whomever is making, creating something for your business, you should have it assigned to you. So let's talk about that something, that it. What generally should we be thinking about as online seller, what could be subject to copyright protection, like those assets? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, I know that we get a lot of questions about bumper stickers and little sayings and things like that, because there does seem to be some small creative element to those. Could you talk a little bit about what would be subject to copyright protection, Rachel, in terms of my, my online business? Sure. So if you're operating an online business, the first thing you may look to protect are the pages, the written content, and the compilation of materials on your website. So your website, your business website pages, the first initial Mm -hmm. copyright application would cover all the pages you have now as it stands. But if you were to revise the pages then you would have to file subsequent copyright applications on each of the revised pages of that website. So that's one thing that you could look to protect. Obviously, individual photos, certain written content that you look to put not only on your website, but on brochures and social media sites would be protectable. Instruction guides Mm. would be protectable. Mm. Even the actual item itself, like the jewelry design, if it's unique and original enough, there's a possibility that your jewelry designs could rise to the level of protection. Flip side, what might not be, what is not subject to copyright protection would be domain names, Mm -hmm. facts, short phrases, you mentioned slogans. So that would come to play if you are selling bumper stickers, for example. It's possible that if you have a very ornate, original, fanciful piece of artwork on that bumper sticker, that that could be protected as artwork. But typically, short phrases, slogans, particularly those in the public domain, would not be protectable. You know, even company logos, unless they are, again, ornate, fanciful, are also not protectable. Rather, you would want to try and seek trademark protection for slogans, which are protectable by trademark and and company logos. But I actually had a case recently where a company insisted on trying to protect their logo, not only by filing trademark applications, but by filing copyright applications. And it was a series of concentric circles, varying colors. And and lo and behold, it was 
not approved by the Copyright Office, when you get a rejection from the Copyright Office, it is very difficult to appeal those. And, mm. and, and most of the time, if you're getting a rejection, the burden is very high to try and overcome it. You're able to appeal it twice. And after that, you just won't obtain a registration. So I can tell from experience, tell you from experience that any logos that have common elements, circles, squares, basic color variations would not be protectable by copyright. Additionally, you know, concepts, theories, systems, themes, those are not protectable by copyright. It's the way in which you, let's say, write about a subject matter or write about a theme that is the story or novel or narrative behind it is but not the actual concept or theory it that would not be i feel like there's a lot of gray area <laughs> with copyright very 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 gray area and that and that's why for the reasons i explained before when you're getting when you're on the receiving end of a demand letter that you initially assess it yourself but but retaining the help of a copyright attorney who does know how to navigate the waters could be expensive at the fore, at the forefront would behoove you at the back end to right. do because uh, you could very well be spinning your wheels. Even if you utilize the help of an attorney, some, some might have, you know, a, a local attorney in the area that that's a generalist, if you will, that handles, you know, the, 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 the local real estate transactions in town and wills and trusts and estates and may have dabbled here and there in the intellectual property trademark copyright scene. That might not also be enough in this case, especially if you are going up against a sizable, reputable IP law firm who, who does have a good handle on the muddy waters of copyright law. Yeah, I always say it's it's less expensive to be proactive than reactive. So, right. yeah, in that situation, it sounds like it would be very smart to have a copyright expert attorney look at that. So let's say that I think that I have a, I'm an online seller and I have a few assets that I think are going to be subject to copyright protection, like maybe some product photography, things like that. What type of cost-benefit analysis should I be doing internally, Rachel, to really help me decide if it makes sense for me to file with the Copyright Office or hire a law firm to help me do that? Well, firstly, it, it, the U.S. Copyright Office uh, in the website and the online filing process can be a little bit troubling to navigate. And importantly, yeah. what goes down on paper cannot be erased. So while at the forefront, it might appear to be, it's just simple form filing, may be actually a loss in rights and protection in certain respects if you're not preparing those applications properly. Sometimes the damage is irreversible and then you're actually spending more money to file a new application all mm -hmm. over again using that attorney and plus paying the attorney's fees to handle that for you. So that's one thing right there. Another thing is if you are faced with an infringer and you do not have a copyright registration, in order to commence a lawsuit under a recent Supreme Court case going back to March of this year, you must have a copyright registration to bring a case in federal court against mm -hmm. an infringer. Let's talk about that. 
here's the thing. If I find out today that there's infringement going on and I haven't prepared, I haven't obtained a copyright registration, well, in order to expedite the registration process, typically it's 10 months or eight months to a year could mm-hmm. be that long to obtain a copyright registration under the standard government fee of $55, then you will then be forced to pay $800 on top of that $55 to expedite the registration process, which could take about a week. So it takes about a week It once you expedite it? It could take about a week once you oh, wow. expedite it. That's yeah. significant. That's significant. Yeah, yeah. And but but then again, so is the $800 fee. But importantly, when you're looking to protect your copyrighted works, you're looking at the most important materials to your business. So are you protecting the entire line of photographs or the entire line of of particular works, it, 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 it's, it's probably your most important ones. It's probably involving a work surrounding your best sellers, your mm-hmm. best selling products that you want to protect because that's the, that's the one that infringers are going to knock off and try to profit from. So why wait to obtain the registration? Also too, when you see an infringer, you hear about it, read about it, you want to send a demand letter right away. And there's nothing stronger than to, in your demand letter, assert your rights and enlist a copyright registration for that work that's being infringed and putting in a copy of the, the registration you've obtained in your name. Waiting for all of this to materialize down the road just weakens your position and it just delays the process. That's all for this episode. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you loved it. I hope you found it of value. And in our next episode, next week, we're going to dive into part two with Miss Rachel. So again, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that episode. And remember, never stop learning. Thanks for listening to Trademarks Made Easy with Susie Hickson, the private label lawyer. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe anywhere you find podcasts or at theprivatelabellawyer.com. Remember, the information provided in the Trademarks Made Easy podcast should not be construed as legal advice. It's for informational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered a substitute for legal advice. Also, I'm not your attorney. You should engage with an attorney to discuss your specific legal issues. And finally, while I have taken precautions to ensure that the content of my podcast is current and accurate, errors can occur, and thankfully, like us, the laws are ever-evolving.